Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark." Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and we've come to the story of Noah and the flood. And what I want us to focus on and consider tonight is how does the story of the flood demonstrate God's grace? We see God's grace throughout the story, but particularly in this chapter at the beginning and at the ending. And at the beginning, verse 1 doesn't seem very significant. Uh, 
It just says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. But there's, if you were to study this text, there are several clues that this verse is very significant. And it demonstrates God, God's grace. So one of the first things that we see, it's on your handout, if I can find the handout, which I have, I know I have it, is a chiastic structure. So it's a sideways pyramid, if I can call it that. <laughs> if you look and you read this, you'll see that some of the verses in chapter 7 are repeated in chapter 8. It's hard for me to verbally explain it. That's why I printed a handout. But the seven days of waiting for the flood in chapter 7, verse 4, are mirrored in the seven days of waiting in chapter 8, verse 12. And you can see that they're parallels. Seven days of waiting for the floods, chapter 7, verse 10, is paralleled by seven days of waiting for the waters to subside. At the very tip of the pyramid are the 150 days of of the water building up or triumphing in chapter 7, verse 24, and 150 days of the water waning in chapter 8, verse 3. Kent Hughes brings this out. Now, what's not shown on that diagram is the very tip is verse 1 of chapter 8, that God remembered Noah. And the implication is that this is the time when the rain stops. It's a hinge. It's, it's a hinge which the narrative turns. At, in chapter 7, we see decreation. God is flooding the, the earth. He's destroying his creation, if you will, or recreating it. And the chapter 8 is about recreation. There's also indications in verse 1 that this is a mirror or a repeat of Genesis 1, verse 2, because what we see is that God made a wind blow over the earth, and that word for wind is the same word for spirit. It's ruach in Hebrew. And in chapter 1, verse 2, you remember that when God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God hovered on the face of the waters. So here we see God recreating the world, and His Spirit is there. The wind is there, the Ruach. Noah, of course, is a kind of new Adam, as Pastor Johnson said, I believe, a couple weeks ago. He's not the second Adam, but he is a type of new Adam. The word remembered, it's not saying that God forgot about Noah and then suddenly, oh, wait a second, I can't remember what what was going on. Oh, Noah, I was flooding the earth. No, that's not what that means. The word remembered is a covenant word. We see it in a couple of other places, one in Genesis and one in Exodus. Actually, there's a couple of places in Genesis, but I'm only going to mention two, or one, excuse me, one in Genesis, one in Exodus. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, God remembered Abraham, it says, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. In Exodus, that same word, remembered. In Exodus, in chapter 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue, for slavery, came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Same word, remembered. It's the, the hinge on which this narrative turns. It's very important. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators on the book of Genesis, says that that word is the idea of faithful love 
and timely intervention. It's pointing to God's covenant, okay? Let's, for, let, let's journey through the text, and I, we see God's grace at the beginning, that he remembered his creation. He remembered Noah. He did not forget. But we also see it at the end. In between, we have some clues of God's grace, particularly in the life of Noah. But in verses 2 and 3, after the rain stops, the ark rests on the mountains of Ararat. Now, that could be a single mountain, but I think the text indicates it's a whole chain of mountains in modern-day Turkey. Now, we don't exactly know which mountain he rested on, on top. It could have been the the highest part of the highest mountain, but we don't exactly know that. He waits after 150 days. And then after the 150 days, he waits some more. At the end of 40 days, it tells us in verse 6, I believe. At the end of 40 days, he waits and then opens a window from the ark. Now, I would like to read a quote from Kent Hughes here about the patience of Noah In the midst of this, he says that in the midst of confinement and discomfort, Noah waited patiently for God's deliverance. There's no record or evidence that God spoke to Noah during the months on the ark or that Noah had a new word from God, but he persevered in faith, manifested by his amazing obedience and his patience, walking with God. I can imagine it would have been hard to wait for 150 days and then 40 more days. But he does more waiting after that. First, he sends out a raven. The raven never comes back. Why does he send out a raven? I think it's because a raven is an unclean animal. He doesn't need it for sacrifice. It's expendable. But then he sends out a dove. The dove immediately returns, which indicates that the water hadn't completely subsided. So he waits another week. He sends a dove again. This time it comes back with an olive leaf. One of the commentators said that the olive tree is not a high altitude tree. The dove, in bringing it to Noah, made him realize that the ground at lower altitudes was now producing life. A sprig of an olive branch in a dove's mouth or a beak has ever since been a symbol of peace and reconciliation. There's another symbol in the dove, not not the olive branch, but the dove. The dove is, in some ways, a symbol of the new creation. It's a symbol of the Spirit. Derek Kidner says that the Holy Spirit, by taking the form of a dove, is a harbinger of a new creation. If you remember, when Jesus is baptized at the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as in the form of a dove. It's in that account, in that episode, it's not only showing us that Jesus is the man of the Spirit, he's endowed with the Spirit, but he's also the one in whom a new creation would come through. We see that here. In verses 15 through 17, we have God's words, which are very similar to his words at the original creation. He says in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, when they descend from the ark, he, when Noah opens the doors and they descend from the ark, all the birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard that before? 
Be fruitful and multiply. Well, that was the same command given to Adam, the first Adam. So we have a new creation. What is it the, that Noah does, the very first thing that this new man, you might say, does in this new creation? He gathers together the animals and he sacrifices to the Lord a whole burnt offering. Now, a whole burnt offering is described in, extended, in an extended way in Leviticus 1, but of course this was before Leviticus. But a whole burnt offering is more than just saying you're grateful to God. It's more than just thanking God. It is, in fact, a sign of surrender. The animal is completely incinerated. And the Bible often talks about an atoning sacrifice. So this is a sacrifice, of course, pointing us toward the ultimate sacrifice, the only true atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God. But it's a sign of Noah's complete surrender to God. The Lord, it tells us in verse 21, smells the pleasing aroma. Uh, He smells the pleasing aroma and says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Now, that word for pleasing, the pleasing aroma. In Hebrew, I'm not a great uh, pronunciator, but it's nechoach, which is related to the word noach. So noah... And the word for pleasing is related. In fact, if you remember when Noah gets his name in Genesis chapter 5, give me a second here, his father Lamech, Genesis 5, had lived 182 years, chapter 5, verse 28, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Noah is related to the word relief. Uh, Relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So these words are all related here. The pleasing aroma, Noah, relief. It's communicating the idea that God is pleased or he's he's at peace. Now, his anger has been soothed. The wrath was poured out on judgment in the earth, but now a pleasing aroma has ascended to him and he has been appeased. Or some of the commentators use the word propitiated, but I'd like to read for you a quote from Derek Gidner where he says, if God is, seems lightly propitiated, this arises from the simplicity of the style, partly from the inherent limitation of all Old Testament sacrifices which can never take away sins. The real propitiation in the mind of God was the sacrifice of Jesus. We see here an offering in which God is pleased, not with the the, the flesh of the animal, but with what it's pointing us to, the propitiation of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. And of course, Noah provides a kind of rest. We see that kind of rest here in at least three ways. It tells us that God promises in verse 21, first, never to curse the ground again. He's never going to flood the earth again. That's the first thing. He's also, number two, never going to strike down every living creature. And number three, there's going to be seasons of the year that are now in effect that weren't necessarily in effect before. So the earth is going to return to regularity. 
we sometimes use the words, the laws of physics or the law of nature. Sorry, there's a gnat up here. Sorry. Um, But really, God is sustaining. He's actively sustaining the world. He's actively sustaining the seasons. He's bringing about the seasons. If God wanted to make winter start later, he could. If he wanted summer to last a little longer, he could. Sometimes I wish summer was a little less hot. And anyway, all of this to say that God is in control of the natural order. Now, does this mean when he promises never to curse the ground again, that the original curse, remember God cursed the ground when he cursed Adam? He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So when when God says he's never going to curse the ground again, is he reversing the curse that he gave to Adam? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means. And I would indicate that, or I think it's indicated in one of the following verses. That is in verse 21. Uh, There's continuity, because in verse 21, there's a sentence that says, The intention of man's heart is evil (laughs) from his birth. I'm looking for the, um, for some reason I'm having trouble finding it. Oh, yes. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that word's youth could also be translated birth, essentially. So it's not that he's innocent when he's born and then he turns 13 and he's evil. That's not what it's communicating. This is often seen as a proof text for original sin. Let me give you a, another verse that is very similar, and it's striking. It's the verse before God floods the earth in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, Before the flood, God says, his heart's evil. Every intention that he has of his heart is only evil continually. And then after the the flood, he says, the intention of man's heart is evil. So what has changed? Not man's heart hasn't changed. The external circumstances have been, uh, have changed. God has judged the earth. He's judged the natural order. And there's a sense in which he's judged man because he's wiped Mankind off the face of the earth, except for Noah and his family. But really, has his heart changed? Has the the sinful nature of man's heart changed? It hasn't. We need another. We need a true new creation. We need someone to uproot the the plant of God's creation from the roots, not just give it a pruning. So, where do we find that? Before I tell you where we find the, the true Adam, let me also quickly say that the rest of the Bible in various places will look back to the flood and they look back to the flood and they say that it demonstrates not only God's love, covenant love, but also his patience. So let me take you to two places where that's true. If you If you want to flip with me, you can to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9. In Isaiah 54, verse 9, 
It says this, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should never go more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. We'll talk about it more next week as we get into the Noahic covenant. But when you look out and you see a beautiful sunset or you see the mountains and you see the beautiful beach, if you're on a beach, one of the things that you should think is that God has never flooded the earth again since Noah. He's not destroyed his creation. He's still been faithful to his creation. Why? Not because we're so good, but because he can't lie. And he told Noah that he was never going to do this again. And he's been faithful to that. And so when we look out and we see the world and we see its beauty, one of the things we should think, and we see the seasons of the year and that they change regularly, we should think that God is faithful to his covenant to Noah. Another thing we should think about is that God is patient. So flip with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 2 through verse 7. It says that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2 through verse 7, you should, let me give you a preface. There are people today who say, Jesus is tarrying. Where is he? He's not coming back. Why isn't he coming back? Where's the Messiah? If the Messiah is truly who you say that he is, he should have already judged the wicked by now. Surely Christ can't be the Messiah. He can't be risen again because if God were really, if he were really God, then he would see the wickedness of the earth and he would come back and put all of this to end. And this is what 2 Peter is dealing with. And it says, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But then he says this, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He's talking about the flood, Noah. And by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. When we look out and we see the wickedness that surrounds us, we see people scoffing at Christians and scoffing at the whole idea of a universe created by God, we ought to remember that today is a day in which God is being patient with us until the day of judgment. It's being kept. The world is being kept until the day of judgment, just as it was In the days of Noah, as he was building the ark, and I'm sure there were scoffers saying, what are you doing building the ark? Well, there's no rain coming. And yet, we find ourselves in similar circumstances. The world is being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. 
Finally, let us consider this. How does this chapter point us to the true second Adam, the true new creation? Jesus Christ is a man of the Ruach. He's a man of the Spirit, endowed with the Spirit. He breathes into us the breath of life. We are told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, the judgment of God's wrath, the judgment, you might say the waters of God's judgment came down upon him. And in that judgment, he's reversing the original curse to Adam. Cursed is the ground. Cursed are you. He's undoing that which has plagued mankind since the very beginning and the fall of Adam. Today, if you are in Christ, you no longer have to worry about the penalty of your sin. It's come down upon Jesus. And also, the power. We are released from the enslaving power to sin, and one day, we will be free of the presence of sin altogether. And so this is the true second Adam. This is his true new creation. That which is typified here in Noah is brought to bear in true form in Christ. See, Noah was a man, a dust man, you might say, a man from the dust. But Christ is a man from heaven. And those who are united to Adam and to the people of the dust will always be enslaved to sin. But if you're united to Christ, the man from heaven, you will indeed be like the man from heaven. What I find to be quite encouraging is this, that the judgment in Noah's day was all external. All the externals changed. But in our day, the new creation is implanted in us internally. We are today already raised with Christ internally by his spirit. But outwardly, we don't see it. Our eyeballs don't see it. What we see is that we're struggling with disease and darkness and death and everything looks as if it, it's not being created new. But there is one day that will come when what is going on on the inside of us, the new creation that's begun with the spirit, will extend to the outside as well. And the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay. That is a day to look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for the coherence of your word. We thank you that we have a true Noah, a man who does give us relief and rest. He brings us into the promised rest of God. We thank you that by his spirit, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we confess that we are often impatient when we see the world around us. We see the wicked thriving. We, we see people in places of power who shouldn't be there. And we wonder when you will judge them. We confess that we often desire to be the judge ourselves. But we pray that you would help us to be patient as you are patient, and that when we look out and see the beauty of your creation, we, we would remember that you've made a covenant with Noah never to flood the earth again, and that you're faithfully executing that day after day, 
season after season, year after year. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray that you would be with us as we journey through this life and we come to find our final rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.